I realize that your plan is for me to bring her along slowly, but the child knows something. Or she has at least seen something. No one could have come up with this on a whim. Mistress Zeltrix held out the sketch she had taken from Cassie earlier in the week, offering it to the headmistress as they sat casually on either side of the long table that featured prominently in the center of the ornate dining room of the headmistress's manor. Taking the drawing and examining it, the headmistress set it on the table before responding. She has an eye for detail, that is certain. But that doesn't answer how it was that she was able to enact a cupiditis with a bit of makeup. I thought dumb luck at first, but seeing this, she has to have been there. Perhaps she picked something up. A brush? A brush. Don't patronize me, Pearl. I have no more of an answer than you. And yet, I brought you here to find answers, not offer excuses. The headmistress's voice leveled as her eyes bore into the Dean of Visual Arts. The lighting in the room dimmed as a frown appeared on Flo Kay's face, and suddenly, Mistress Zeltrix was grabbing at her throat and making hoarse sounds as if struggling to breathe. The tension held for a moment longer. Then the mistress relaxed back into her seat and lifted the inscription from the table to examine it once again. Mistress Zeltrix coughed and drew a deep <coughs> breath, the look on her face now pure acquiescence and obedience. Allow me to apologize, Imperator. I was out of place. You have served well in the field, where you have been free to act as you have seen fit. Your service has been remarkable, but another can take your place as easily if you find my leadership chafing. This, the headmistress said, as she continued to regard the charcoal sketch, turning it around in her hand as she spoke. And we're not to use those terms while you are here. Headmistress will suffice. This is an honor, headmistress. I am here to obey. You are here to help me finish the work that is so very near completion. I need every ounce of skill and artistry that you contain. Not a mindless lapdog. I only ask that you show the respect of the office that I hold. Understood, headmistress. Mistress Zeltrix bowed her head while remaining seated. Now, you said that you had a plan for the girl. The two powerful women spoke in hushed tones late into the night. When at last they both rose from the table, Mistress Zeltrix offered a brief bow before departing through the doors and out into the night as the headmistress walked slowly to the fireplace where she bent to feed Cassie's sketch to the flames. All right, welcome everyone, especially our first years. Many of you have played sports like football, soccer, lacrosse, field hockey, and the like. The fundamental rules of this game should be pretty familiar to you all. 
Basically, your aim is to score more and faster than the other Cassie team. Cassie discovered earlier that the young man she had inadvertently bumped into in the hallway was named Willem Marshall IV and was the captain of not only the co-ed team, but the school team as well. And of course, he was in his senior season in the performing arts, a diva as they were called. Apparently, he was also the darling of every first and second year woman in the school. There was even a shared chat room chronicling his every action and location, as well as several fake social media accounts. It was all a bit much for Cassie who certainly found him attractive, but not to the point of obsession. Now that she had seen him clearly, she also recognized him as the one leading the banner ceremony on the fountain in the front of the lid. Today, he wore a purple top that did nothing to hide the muscle below, and he strode about in full command of his team and field. Perhaps obsession isn't such a bad thing. Cassie murmured softly before looking about quickly to ensure that no one had heard her. She noticed that some other members of the team were running a slow warm-up circuit around the field, including Captain O'Dine, who kept casting warning glances at her. Assuming rightly that running would be involved, Cassie had chosen her athletic wear, as that made the most sense, and discovered that she was not mistaken in her choice. Though the other first-year scholars also sported cleats and padding, from what she had learned from Sarah, the game was called Hala, the J pronounced with a soft H sound. In Hala, two teams competed against each other, and the field resembled a rugby pitch or American football, but didn't have to be as large as those, so that it could be played almost anywhere as long as you had a designated safe zone and a pole or basket of some type on either side of the field. Each team was composed of 12 players, who were tasked with being the first to get 12 banners from their safe zone to the opposing team safe zone. Getting a banner into the enemy's safe zone was called a scoring cross. Willem was just getting into the details as she arrived. The game is played in two timed halves of 20 minutes each. And if there is a tie, the game continues with an untimed sudden death period. The longest game I've ever seen took two days to complete. So scoring is essential. And no, the Masters do not stop the classes, even for the Governor's Championship. Fortunately, this is just a friendly league, and so the game can end in a tie. Hits nodded all around, as if this were all well-known and obvious, leaving Cassie to think that perhaps she was the only one here that had never heard of this game before. Captain O'Dine stepped up beside Willem as he motioned for her to continue the instruction, a role that Captain O'Dine took to naturally, like a shark to the hunt. There are two types of players. The diminutive but powerful woman noted as she strode in front of the line of newcomers. Scampers and jammers. A scamper is an offensive player who wears the banner affixed to their waist and tries to make it to the opposing safe zone without having their banner pulled. A jammer is a defensive player, blocking for their scampers and pulling banners from opposing team scampers. A scamper can also pull an opposing team banner, but any team member that pulls a banner must immediately return that banner to their own safe zone before engaging any other players or attempting a scoring cross. Doing so can be called for an interference penalty where that player is sidelined for two to five minutes. Captain O'Dine had now made her way to Cassie, looking her up and down with a critical eye as she continued. When a scamper makes it to the opposing team's safe zone, they must place their banner on the scoring pole or basket before returning to their own safe zone. 
A returning scamper cannot touch or interfere with any other player on the field until both of their feet have crossed their own safe zone line. Once the scamper scores, however, they are able to freely retrieve any of their own banners that have been stolen and placed in the safe zone by the opposing team. They cannot pick these up and attempt to score with them until each banner has been taken back to their own safe zone. Jammers are only permitted to block and steal banners, they cannot score, and scampers are not permitted to block or impede any other player's progress. Finally, illegal moves include tackling, punching, kicking or hitting of any kind, grabbing, tripping, grappling, and pulling. And that's just the basics. Cassie now nodded with the others, as the game seemed to be simple enough, but said nothing as Willem stepped forward once again to add a final note. Now the strategy of the game comes in the designation of your players. Each team must assign who will be scampers and who will be jammers at the beginning of the game, and then again at the half. You can play all scampers or all jammers if you wish, so understanding the opposing manager's playing style is critical. Okay then, let's have the first years run a few drills and see what you can do. Willem then took a whistle from his pocket and slung it over his neck, giving two quick blasts before turning and trotting to the center of the field. Cassie and the handful of other first years followed behind, with Cassie now fervently wishing that she had a set of cleats as the grass was soft and slightly muddy. Once they had reached the center, Willem directed four of the seven to one half the field designated for scamper practice and indicated to Cassie and the two largest boys to head to the jammer side. As she jogged along with the young men, Cassie couldn't help but notice how physically outmatched she was, with the two towering at least ahead over her. Nor was it lost on her that one of the young men was Bobby Franks, who was leering at her. Oh, it's Judy. Come to play with the boys. Funny how I didn't see you at the dance. Cassie blanched and looked away, only too grateful for a familiar voice cutting in with further instruction. All right. Willem says you three will make good jammers. I'm here to check his work. Looking away from the two hulking boys on either side of her, Cassie couldn't help but smile with relief as Whittle trotted up to them. Whittle flashed a brief smile in return before covering her face in a mask of seriousness. You two have the size, but do you have the feet? And you? Tough hands doesn't always translate. So... Step back, line up, and try to get around me. The boys both <laughs> chuckled as the three of them stepped back a few yards and formed a single file line. Are you sure? I mean, I was told not to hit girls, but don't worry, I'll go easy on you. <laughs> Bobby smirked as he said this, lowering himself for a charge, his pimply nose already glistening with sweat. Dipping into a three-point stance, Bobby growled before rushing toward Whittle with his shoulder forward. At first, Cassie thought he was going to demolish Whittle, as he outweighed her by two to three times. But as he charged, Whittle simply waited for her moment, then ducked and dove at him with a forearm to his opposing hip as he planted a foot and sent him tumbling and spinning to the ground where he landed with a wet thud. The second boy's eyes flared at this and so he approached with a bit more caution. Lacking the ability to grab and grapple seemed to leave him in a confused state long enough for the quicker Whittle to glide in. Faint a strike toward his upper body, which threw his balance before striking his hip and sending him reeling backward onto the ground as well. 
Being a jammer is about gaining the advantage of balance. While brute force will work against an inexperienced opponent, you'll have to be sharp mentally. Alright Cassie, let's see if you can get past me. Having played several sports in school, Cassie was not entirely out of her element, but Whittle was clearly experienced at this game. Nevertheless, she began to trot toward the other woman, watching her hips and shoulders as she had been taught, and with a quick juke to the right, followed by a spin, Cassie slipped just beyond Whittle's lightning quick strike, but having gotten a step beyond Whittle, she was not prepared for the hip check that eventually sent her sprawling into the sodden grass. A hand reached down to her as Whittle offered to help Cassie to her feet. You show promise. I can see that you must have played for Coach Janice as well, if I'm not mistaken. Accepting the hand, Cassie sprang to her feet, replying, Trident strike thrice. Whittle laughed and <laughs> clapped her on the shoulder. Looks like we have a new jammer. Though there are some tricks you'll need to pick up. Who knows? Maybe you'll make the school team someday. Cassie blushed at the praise as she walked back to where the two larger boys were standing, their faces grim with determination. She took it easy on you, princess. Just wait till we're in a real match. Jawed Bobby before being interrupted by Whittle's next order. All right, now we test your stamina. Follow after me, scrubs. Whittle ordered before beginning a slow jog toward the edge of the field where she had set up a series of cones. The remainder of practice was an exhausting string of jogging, sprints, calisthenics, and plyometric exercises that left the three first years, Cassie included, soaked in sweat, muddy, and heading toward a very sore tomorrow. But for Cassie, it was the first time she began to feel like she was fitting in. As she walked toward the shower house to clean up, Whittle caught up to her. Well done out there, fellow Judy. If you're up for another history lesson, meet me by the garden outside the lid after curfew. There's something I think you'll find very interesting. With a wink, Whittle spun away and back toward Willem, who was gathering his team captains back in the center of the pitch for their feedback on the assessments they had made during the day's practice. What a weird, wonderful place. Cassie commented to no one in particular before picking up her pace with the thought of being warm and clean, driving her tired legs forward. So, Jalal then? Cassie was returning to her dorm after cleaning up. Glad that she had been smart enough to bring the small duffel bag with a clean change of clothing when the voice broke her wandering train of thought. Turning to the voice, she frowned, recognizing the slight young man as Ludo, the young scribbler that had arrived with her on the bus. Uh, not even a smile for your oldest friend then? Ludo closed a notebook he had been writing in as she had walked up and rose to his feet as she drew near. C come on, Cassie, right? You can't have made so many friends already that you couldn't use another. I guess you've pushed so many people away already that you're desperate for anyone to talk to. <laughs> Cassie said with an overly pronounced huff, but did not run him off. Oh, see, that was really good acting. Perhaps you're in the wrong house after all. And you may have a point. The younger man trailed off. If you didn't come on so strong, 
You might make some friends, Ludo. What were you writing there anyway? We have to keep a daily journal. Part of our curriculum is to keep a constant pace of writing. Get us used to outputting volume, I guess. Ludo shrugged, but stepped up beside her as they both now headed back toward campus. The fading noise of practices winding down, mixing with birds singing their twilight songs. In one swift motion, Cassie dipped and snagged his journal, opening it to the center where she saw what looked like a poem. Hey, hey now, th those are private. Ludo protested, but he made no move to retrieve his notebook from her as Cassie had pulled it to the opposite side and was already starting to read. Am I the only one who feels unqualified for the next phase and the next beyond? Cognitively, I'm aware that not 10, but tens of thousands trod the very same paths and many with less a start than what I've been given. Why is it that I worry about ability when I have no disability? Am I no less likely to graduate than others of equal or lesser capability? Perhaps it is a self-talk that must be quashed with constant reminders of past success. It's, it's not bad, Ludo. It makes me think that there's something actually inside that head of yours. Cassie's voice had gentled toward him as she read. And after reading, she closed the book and handed it back to him. Thought you'd find a poem about you in there, didn't you? He retorted as he took the notebook back. Cassie stopped walking and turned to him. See? That's what I'm talking about. You don't have to try to be whatever that is. Just be what's on those pages, Ludo, and people will like you. The young man stared back at her, having no reply for her directness. But Cassie could see him physically relaxing. And no. The answer's no. You're not the only one that feels unqualified. Turning back up the path, Cassie continued toward the school with a more subdued Ludo following alongside. I do not trust the self-seeking advice that trolls across my social spaces. Falling prey to the ill-informed intent might result in the reproduction of angry faces smeared in hate-filled taunts that have no space in this life in which I intend. And how can it be that the bias still exists in the second millennia of a progressive world? Yet if the change I wish to see doesn't start with me, I'm no less blind, nor less a cause of things I hear and of which I have seen that cause me pause. Should I rather not be inspired by the daily toil of more mundane aspirations? Like the blinking ideals that mount inoffensive despite the crushing uncertainty of future conditions. Can I not avoid the traps of my predestined glory? Or shall I just plunge to the dissipation of my own story? Must I truly be unique or must I be willing to try? Must I truly stand out or must I be willing to stand by? Is it trite to suggest that 80% is showing up to be counted among the 20% that are shouting stop? Must I truly be prepared for a life that I've not yet lived or am I already ahead by simply taking the initiative? Do I seem so much less if I cannot grasp that work is work and not play? That what I do is for the future and not today? Can I not find evidence to remain calm when faced with pointed questions that are dangled before me like mere suggestions? An overripened bowl of quips and tropes, succumbing to the underlying subterfuge of vapid hope. Are they not more in need of what I can bring than they let on? Their so specific search can hardly overcome the thin slicing that intimates a choice well before their conscious mind begins to voice. 
And so perhaps it is less a matter of matching the impossible ideal that frames their solid-state concept of meeting, and is more a matter of meeting their humanity with my own. However frail mine may seem, however drawn or weary my ideals, however simple-minded or short of sight I feel, I know that I am not alone. So long as I avoid the silly refrains that litter the path along the way towards the inevitable but overstyled solitude of the grave. Must I truly be unique or must I be willing to try? Must I truly stand out or must I be willing to stand by? Is it trite to suggest that 80% is showing up to be counted among the 20% that are shouting stop? Must I truly be prepared for a life I've not yet lived or am I already ahead by simply taking the initiative. After a moment of silence, the younger man flipped to a page near the end of his notebook and began to read. Standing tall and slight, hair streaming tossed and blown like the eternal twilight against the black cliff stone. Observers are a-watching silent in the gloom, the prey they are stalking closer than the moon. Shadows creeping, scouting danger to behoove. Silently I'm shouting, wishing her to move. Standing on the stone, she is not alone. Cassie, I've seen you on the stone cliff, drawing. I've had the same dream nearly every night, but, but it's not it's not the same dream. It's a little different each time. Ludo's voice was earnest now, almost imploring her to believe him. Are- are you serious? What kind of creepy things have you been up to? Cassie's mind was whirling. She began to pick up her pace, afraid to look back at him, needing space to think this through, and all the while wishing she were just having some sort of nightmare. Ludo had stopped in his tracks, hand clutching the notebook limply to his side as he called weakly after her. It's true, Cassie. I'm not trying to be a creep. I just... I think you're in danger. Cassie broke away in a run. The burn from practice forgotten. Not knowing what else to do, she merely ran without knowing where she was going. This can't be real. It, it can't be real. There were too many coincidences. Too many recent bits of evidence that were piling up to mean one thing. The dreams might just be real. As Cassie ran, a small group of faculty were gathering for an informal meeting in an upper conference room in Triplet Hall. Now, Grimpen, why is it that you've called us all in such secrecy? Belladonis had agreed, after much urging from Master Grimpen Galleon, to meet along with Cressida, Mistress Shailene Beckett, Dean of Writing, and Master Ignis Radcliffe, Dean of Digital Arts. The only Dean not invited was Cynthia Zeltrix, whose absence few paid any mind to as she was new to the school and not privy to the history of student disappearances, which was the reason for the gathering. So, uh, j just, just to get my numbers straight, Bale, uh, one of your students and one of Cressida's dancers disappeared last season. Uh, two of my musicians, both vocalists, one lost last season, along with one from Shaleen's society and one from Cynthia's. The most recent was another of yours, Bale, uh, but, but, but one of my vocalists. Is that correct? 
have there been any others? Master Grimpen had settled himself at the head of the small conference table and opened a notebook in which he had jotted a number of notes. We all know these things, Grimpy darling. Pearl has assured me that she is looking into this personally. So why the sudden fuss and the secrecy? Even the way that Cressida sat in a chair was graceful as she slurred her words slightly in her alluring way. Master Grimpen slid several thumb drives across the table, one for each attendee. This... this is the song they, they were practicing when the students disappeared. I've tried to erase all copies of it, but you know how things are nowadays. Nothing has ever truly gone. Well, it certainly won't help to hand out another set of copies, Grimpen. And what are we to do with these? Study them until we disappear? Bale emphasized the word we, but pocketed the thumb drive nonetheless. I think we need to take further precautions. I, I think we should cancel our participation in this season's show. What? Never! You must be mad, Grimpen. Bale's response was immediate, as he pounded the table with his fists. Walgrove has won the Governor's Cup for 35 years straight. 35 years! And you just want to just not show up? Madness! Pure madness. Come now, Bale. Let us listen to Grimpy. I'm sure he has a reason for this insanity. Don't you, darling? Silly man, your life's a scam. You think we're hiding, but you just don't understand. It's all for naught. Your time is short. You think they're scheming, but you're really just a crackpot. What is worse, this rhyming verse? Is not the meal you've had, you're just a man whose mind is cursed. way of taking the good and returning bad in your case i'd say you're all out of luck and that's really sad You know, the other day you were looking in the mirror, you thought you saw your father, but he had a strange appearance. The sad truth of it is that you're running out of time. Your brain is melting out your ears like ooey gooey slime. Life has a way of taking the good and returning bad. In your case, I'd say you're all out of luck, and that's really sad. Grimpy dear. I'm so sad to say You think you're special But this really isn't your day It's all for naught Your time is short You think you're winning But you're really just a crackpot But cheer up It could be worse Oh, who are we kidding? You're just a man whose mind is cursed But Grimpen merely continued his sentence and, and, and I think we should remove the senior painting from Quibley Hall. This time, Cressida interjected. Cynthia will never permit that, as you well know. And there is no proof that the mural is connected with the disappearance. Now, dear, who is the one that should simmer down? <sighs> you must see reason, Grimpen. 
We can't go shutting down the school. We simply can't. Certainly not without more information to go on. Bale had lounged back, once again completely in control of his demeanor. Grimpen sat quietly until the other two had settled down. Immortem is a fine musical, but it is at the very heart of these disappearances. The visual arts student was painting the mural on the backdrop when she disappeared. Uh, both of my vocalists were practicing one of the songs. Your dancer was performing choreography from a scene in the musical, and, and Bale, your student was rehearsing a poem, which, which was translated by the writing student that disappeared. Master Grimpen was red-faced with exasperation as he tried to drive his point home. It's the play, I'm telling you. There's something about the play. Wherever did you find the thing? Heavens, man, calm down. It's part of the Epic of Gilgamesh. You know, our ancient Sumerian heritage we are so fond of. Bale had accented the end of that phrase, making light of the oft-repeated marketing line for the school. The song and the scene, as I understand it, is nothing more than Gilgamesh's rejection of Ishtar. This stuff doesn't mean anything, and it even ends by admitting that the search for immortality is fruitless. It's connected. Surely you can find something else to work on. The students work on these plays for two years. You can't just change it out. You know that as well as I do. It would destroy every senior season. It might cost some of these students the moment they need to get noticed for a bigger stage. It would certainly destroy our chances at keeping the cup, which would cause a riot in the board and with our benefactors. Cressida pleaded with Grimpen now, though her voice made it clear that she would not support his request. It might cost them a great deal more than a bigger stage. They might be lost forever. Both Bale and Cressida <laughs> laughed at this, taking it as simply bad melodramatic theater. The other two masters continued in their silence until... Grimpen sighed audibly and leaned back in his chair. Fine. You need more evidence. I'll find more. Somehow. Just... just... just be careful with that musical piece. I'll make a new arrangement. And at least change the choreography, Cressida. Fine. Cressida responded as she slid smoothly from the chair to her feet, offering a handout to Bale. Come along, Bale. We have some changes to discuss. <laughs> The meeting having drawn to a close, the remaining masters followed, leaving Master Galleon alone in the conference room. Whittle was sitting on the edge of the fountain as Cassie arrived. The moon was just rising over the silhouette of the lid as Cassie took a seat next to Whittle, who had a duffel bag in one hand and a flashlight in the other. I guess a darker outfit would have been smart, <laughs> muttered Cassie as she noted Whittle's thin figure wrapped head to toe in black versus her own gray athletic joggers and a sweatshirt. You obviously don't have much to wear beyond your school clothes, so here. Whittle handed the duffel bag to Cassie, who unzipped it to find a pair of cleats, along with the type of pads she had seen the other jammers wear, and a practice uniform. You don't have to do that, Whittle. Yes, I do. If you're going to be on my team, you need to be equipped to win. 
Besides, I don't want to see my girlfriend all bruised up and limping around campus. Whittle smirked in saying this, but was already on her feet before Cassie could respond. Hush now. We need to be quiet on this next part. Cassie let the moment pass, closing the duffel bag back up and crouching as she followed Whittle quietly out of the maze-like garden. With a series of hand motions that Cassie could only guess at, Whittle took them swiftly across the lane to a medium-sized building emblazoned with the name Quibley Hall across the front. But rather than approach the front, she nudged Cassie to follow her around the building to a small door in the rear that had been propped open. Deftly, the two slipped in and closed the door behind them, waiting a moment for their eyes to adjust to the dark interior. Completely blind and confused at this point, Cassie caught Whittle's wrist gently. She could feel the other girl's steady pulse. <sighs> at least I'm not the only one out of breath, Cassie whispered. She could sense Whittle smiling back at her as a light tug indicated they should move forward. For a few minutes, the pair traveled the darkness hand in hand until Cassie could hear a metal door creak open and then the audible click of the flashlight, which was partially covered with cloth to mute its brightness. Why all the secrecy? Cassie asked in a whisper. This is the senior project building. Seniors have been known to treat those who are found here that do not belong very poorly. Cassie nodded at this. So if we're here to see something, how did you know it was here in the first place? So many questions, my little grasshopper. There. Just follow my light. The beam cut from the floor to the wall in what appeared to be a large painted mural or scene that Cassie couldn't quite make out. One of your society students was working on this mural for the show this season when she disappeared. A chill ran down Cassie's spine as she followed the light, which was tracing across the mural. How, how can someone disappear by painting something? Right? I thought you might know. But it isn't just the painting itself. Here, hold this while I go get the thing I wanted to show you. The flashlight was pressed into Cassie's hand as she heard Widow walk slowly toward the mural, rippling the fabric as she pushed it aside in one corner. Slowly, Cassie stepped back in the room and removed the layer of cloth from the beam, allowing the light to cast a wider glow over the mural. Her breath caught. <gasps> it was a scene of a stone cliff next to a long gorge in a waterfall. There were darkened crevices like caves cut out along the cliff, but most extraordinary was the coloring. It was twilight, and it was exactly like her dream. A sudden noise made her jump, but it was only Whittle returning with a can of paint that she had pried open. Here, hold this. This time the light was taken from her as Whittle handed the small can of paint to her and flipped off the light. The room fell into complete darkness, but as her eyes began to adjust, Cassie could see a faint bluish glow emanating from the paint inside the bucket. It's phosphorescence. That's, that's pretty neat. Cassie was confused, her mind still dazzled by the mural she had just seen. No, actually it's sonoluminescence. Watch this. Softly, Whittle began to sing a simple vocal exercise, holding and changing notes like an ancient aria or arpeggio. And as she did, 
the paint began to glow more brightly. Cassie watched in fascination as the glow within the bucket pulsed with the notes. But as she lifted her eyes to say something, her breath caught as she took in the changes to the large mural. All along the edge of the huge fabric curtain, symbols began to emerge, all glowing in the same soft blue color, until the whole mural looked to be suspended in a frame of light. A chill ran down Cassie's back as her stomach lurched into a knot. Something was wrong. Something felt wrong. The image on the huge mural was shifting, becoming almost three-dimensional. Quickly, Cassie shifted the bucket to one hand and grabbed Whittle's wrist. You need to stop that, Whittle. Stop singing. As Whittle did, the light began to fade along with the tension in Cassie's stomach. There's more. I'm not even singing the most interesting piece. Some sort of ancient hymn, I think. Cassie could hear the excitement in Whittle's voice, matching her own rising fear. Whittle, you're going to think I'm crazy. But you have to promise me that you'll never sing that song again. Not, not here at least. Not around that mural. In the faint hue from the paint can, Cassie could see Whittle's eyebrows raise questioningly as she opened her mouth to respond. But just as she was about to say something, the lights in the room flickered on, blinding them both as a stern voice called out. All right, stay right where you are. Alistair, I've got them. Yeah, I'll keep them here until you arrive. Cassie and the Spectral Shade is an original story written, scored, and narrated by Daniel Nichols, and is produced by Good Ham Productions. This narrative-based audio presentation is the second story in the broader Chronicles of Eridal series, which can also be found in bound print and digital book format at major booksellers near you. All of our work at Good Ham Productions is made possible by our patrons, the support of our listening audience, and the tremendous voice talent of our many podcasting creators and friends. Cassie Cole is voiced by the amazing J.D. Rose from Goodham Productions. Sarah Dawson and Aunt Noni are voiced by Nikki Richardson from Top of the Round. Willem Marshall IV is voiced by Storm S. Cohn from Goodham Productions. Whittle Apple is voiced by Dietrich Marie Bowie. Headmistress Pearl Bloquet is voiced by Rachel Finley from Goodham Productions. Ludo Van Ness is voiced by Adam Legrave from The Tallgrass Podcast. Janice Tremaine is voiced by Beth Yadden. Bentley the Bus Driver and Master Grimpen Galleon are voiced by Brad Zimmerman from The Gigantic Adventures of Jeff and Simon and Fate of Ison Podcast. Jimmy and Bobby Franks are voiced by Kenneth Eccles from Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast. Mistress Cressida McLean is voiced by Julie Miller from The Podville Podcast. Master Bale Adonis is voiced by Corbin Miller from The Podville Podcast. Mistress Cynthia Zeltrix is voiced by Haley Munoz from Goodham Productions. Molly O'Dyne is voiced by Susanna Lewis from the Thorndale Podcast. 
Trevor Dawson is voiced by Cody Miller from Good Hand Productions. Alastair Montrose and Willem Marshall III are voiced by Jordash Richardson from Top of the Round. Mistress Audrey Maud is voiced by Kate Walinga from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. Garrett Black and Harvey Kettle are voiced by Mike Atchley from Goodham Productions. Lanana is voiced by Brian Dowling from Goodham Productions. The Ningalix is voiced by Jolene Fresquez from Goodham Productions. The music, singing, foley, and sound effects are all original creations of our insanely talented cast and crew at Goodham Productions. 